Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and you're listening to Rolling Stone Music Now. I'm in the studio with Andy Green. Hey, Andy. Hi, Brian. How you doing? I'm pretty good, and we're going to talk about The Dirt on Netflix, but we're going to talk about more than that. We're going to talk about the upcoming Elton John movie, which you've seen what? Uh, About 20 minutes of it. And just the general future of rock and roll in the movies, because it seems like something's going on. Yeah, I'm getting the sense that the Queen movie was so massively popular and caused such a huge resurgence in Queen and got so much interest amongst young people that every big band in the world now wants to just make a movie. It's the perfect way to get their careers back on track, to get money flowing again. Absolutely. And there's so much to be said about this, which is why I wanted to do the show. One of the things is, I wouldn't be surprised if right now there's a generation of teenagers who are getting into rock and roll, A, Mm -hmm. because of these movies, and B, are utterly convinced, as of this week, that the two most important bands in rock history are Queen and Motley Crue. Right. And it's so bizarre, the Queen movie, that did so well that it won Best Actor, (laughs) which is insane to me. I mean, I thought that he was good, but the scene that they showed at the Academy Awards is him lip-syncing to Bohemian Rhapsody. (laughs) It's just sort of ridiculous. Yeah, Freddie Mercury won Best Actor, (laughs) basically. Yeah, but I think Queen are sort of bigger in the States now than they've ever been because they weren't a real American superstar band. It was always bigger in Europe. Yeah, I saw a tweet the other day from a very young person that's like, unpopular opinion. Smells like Teen Spirit is better than Bohemian Rhapsody. Yeah. (laughs) And it's like, that's what's happened. Because if Nirvana's so good, where's their movie? Yeah, because what started happening a few months ago is that Top 40 Radio started playing old Queen songs. They were playing Bohemian Rhapsody, which is the second time that happened because of Wayne's World in the 90s. Yes, I mean, many people from our generation were introduced to Queen through Bohemian Rhapsody. Yeah, that was my first time hearing that song was in that movie, which is a very common story for folks my age. But I think a, about my nephew, who is 12, who I called me up and he goes, why is Hits 1 playing that Queen song so often? Well, I think what's going on here is young people are sort of like, you know, when uh, chicks come out of the egg and they imprint on whatever they see. Mm-hmm. Things that are ambient in the culture are so powerful. And that's what's usually required to cause shifts. Yeah. And Netflix is so important now. Mm-hmm. There are people who would never watch anything that's not on Netflix. It could yeah. be on Amazon, it could be on HBO, they're not going to watch it. It has to be on Netflix. And when Netflix has this Motley Crue movie that presents this to a young person, to a young dude, certainly not to a young woman, seductive vision yeah. of rock and roll life, we'll see what happens. And it's perfect for these bands because they can now tell the story in the way they wanted it it to happen. They have full control. They cast themselves. They have script approval and they shape their history now in the exact way that they want. I think there's going to be so much coming from this. One of the things is you said every big band's going to want their movie. Yeah. I think that's true. Small bands. But yeah, I think you're going to see like Rat being like, well, we have a weird story. I bet that Brett Michaels is meeting with people right now and saying it's called Nothing But A Good Time. (laughs) It'll be on Hulu and we'll do it big. No, it's called Every Rose. I think it'll be called Nothing But A Good Time. (laughs) That sums up the entire, like the ethos of Poison. Depends if you're going for sort of a more emotional take on it. But I see what you're saying, yes. And and so in about two months or so, they're putting Rocket Man out. And if that's a big hit, then all bets are off. There'll be movies about Kansas and Cheap Trick and Fog Hat. <laughs> it's going to be insane. Even if it flops, because people will be like, well, it's not rock with it, R-A-W-K. Because I, I think right. this is a tricky twist on it because it's it's Elton John. I mean, Elton John lived a rock and roll lifestyle, and Elton John had plenty. I mean, Elton John was a huge influence on Guns N' Roses. People don't realize that, or at least on Axel. Yeah. 
But Elton John doesn't have that sort of like, you can't see it, but I'm doing like the Beavis metal hands right now. He doesn't have that, but he has 40 hit songs and he still plays arenas and he's a huge, huge star. I think it'll be a hit. So why are these movies successful? Any Stars Born as well had a rock and roll thing to it. We talked a little yeah. bit about this. Why are these movies that are so rock and roll successful when rock and roll itself is nowhere to be seen on the charts right now? I think that rock, it's been out of the culture. It's been gone for so long now. These movies are like westerns or something in like the 40s. It's like this lost ha. era that was before you were born or when you were very little that you can go witness it now as a movie. It is no longer happening in the present, it's it's been so damn long now, it's now history. I think that's true, and I think building off your point, I think it is the novelty. Yeah. These stories that are old, that seemed old in the sense that we already knew them, are now old in the sense that they're so old that they're history that people don't know. And young people seem really taken. Young people are super taken by Bohemian Rhapsody. Yeah, and they're fantasies in a way of so many people. It's a perfect structure of a movie is they start totally unknown and, and the odds are stacked against them. Then they break it big and change the world. That's a perfect arc of just any movie. Exactly. So that's why biopics have always worked. That's why even in the wake of Walk Hard, as we've discussed before, which demolished every stereotype of the biopic, it does not matter. As the guy says, as Mike Myers says, yeah. in Bohemian Rhapsody, the formula works. Yeah. And it's just sort of shocking because you, I, thought, I, you I, thought Bohemian Rhapsody was a disaster. Admit I, it. I saw it at a press screening. I hated every second of it. I said, this thing is going to bomb. I was <laughs> positive. I'm like, first of all, Queen in this country are like a B-list rock band. And it's been so long and this movie sucks. It's a joke. Cut to Queen opening <laughs> yeah. the Oscars. Oscars. Well, I will say I had the benefit of a little more perspective because right. I saw it the Thursday night preview opening after you guys all came back and said this thing was terrible. And my expectations were so low because it, it wasn't just you. A lot of people were like, this thing is like cheesy garbage. So I I watched it and I was like, geez, you know, I mean, maybe I'm an idiot, but, and, you know, I'm, I might be, I'm pretty entertained here. I was enjoying it. And so I came back and said, I don't know, you guys might be right that objectively speaking, there's a lot of problems with this movie, but I have a feeling it's going to be big. And it's not because I'm some genius. It actually might be because my tastes are so plebeian that I enjoyed it. Right. And then, but there were many critics who were on my side. Oh, yeah, no, the critics were and all on then, your side, yeah. But then the Oscars happened. How the hell did that happen? <laughs> well, I think the movie is overall extremely feel-good entertaining, which is very bizarre if you think about like what the actual story of Queen ended with. Of course, they would say but the they story of Queen. There. Yeah, of course, Adam Lambert, blah, blah, blah. But the yeah. story of Queen with Freddie Mercury ended like as tragically as a band could possibly end. But yeah, there's something so feel-good about that movie. So I think that's a long, you know, Oscar voters are not like all like galaxy brain critic geniuses. They're just people who make movies. And so look at the other stuff they respond to. You know, it's not like they always are, you know, voting for Pulp Fiction for Best Picture. Right. And then the Brian Singer thing happened, which I thought would be a big problem. And they erased that from history. Like that didn't happen. Didn't matter. Yeah. It's incredible. I think another aspect of the nostalgia is... That So now even kids who are not like makers of music, I think they're aware that being a star now is you just post something on SoundCloud, you have a cool look on Insta, and there's like a 30% chance you'll become in instantly famous for the space of six months and then never be heard from again. Right. Of course, there's many lasting stars and many, many people who, who are, you know, as talented as in any era, but the romanticism of like, we're slugging it on the road, we're slowly, the A&R guy might see us, all that is gone. Right. Right. It's a pre-internet look at fame, which is now a long time ago. And again, it's like a Western. It's like history. It's this exciting, just sort of ancient world that of heroes and villains. And, and you know, the fact is, like, not to be, like, universalist or rockist, there is an appeal 
a primal appeal to this particular kind of music. Not that there isn't a massive appeal to the many other kinds of music that are popular now, but even I, like, I don't sit around listening to rock music all the time. I'm listening to current hip-hop. I'm listening to pop. And in these scenes, in these movies, in the dirt, like the scene... When he's learning guitar for the first time and rocking out to is it Thin Lizzy? I forgot what artist it was. It was some. It was like yeah. uh, it was like Thin Lizzy or but you know something like that. And he's like banging his head and rocking on guitar. And it's like oh right, that's why people like, like rock and roll. And I think there's a real power to yeah, that. Yeah, it's a visceral thrill. And I think the scene in the Queen movie that got the most excitement at theater it was the big Live Aid thing. It was like 15 minutes of Live Aid. Just a rock Aid, concert. Yeah. And but it sounds so great in the theater and they did it perfectly. It was the perfect climax to, to that movie. I thought it was cheesy, but to most people, it was super exciting. Because I think that experience of a powerful live rock band, again, not to diminish any other kind of music, has a unique power to it. And when you have that completely absent from the culture, you can go through an entire VMAs. It's completely absent. And when something is absent, other than, you know, like Greta Van Fleet, hi, Greta Van Fleet, it it fuels a thing like, oh, maybe we right. kind of have a little hunger for this. Right, because the bands playing stadiums now that are rock are the Stones, the Roger Waters, they're Dead & Co. They're people that are 50 years past their prime that are doing it. So to go see Queen, Young, and Thrilling when they're still doing it is exciting for people. It'll be funny if this means that when the Black Keys go on tour this year, they're suddenly they're like, they're like why are we selling faster than ever before? <laughs> this is a miracle. I mean, they'll sell anyway, but I do, listen... Do I think like quote unquote rock will be back in the sense that like some dude who doesn't like all current music is like, oh, this crap will be gone and everyone will just be like like the Sunset Strip again. I don't even like the Sunset Strip music for the most part. No, but I do think this will fuel some elements of pop culture and music going forward. I think no doubt in five years, four years, three years, it's fast now. You'll be like some kid, be like, I saw The Dirt, I saw Bohemian Rhapsody, I was like, I have to be in a band like that. And then you'll hear them and it will, it will sound nothing like that. It'll be like a guitar over like, <laughs> over like trap beats, whatever, more like little Peep, but whatever. It will have an influence. I could feel it from my own reaction to these movies and made me want to be in a band again and maybe want to play guitar again, at least for a moment. So I, I think there's a visceral power to just being reminded of this, even in the, if these movies aren't that super great for the most part. Yeah, I think you're right. In the few scenes I saw of Rocket Man, I was feeling the same thing. It was very intense. You wanted to like wear a Donald Duck suit and play the <laughs> piano, as teens have had for time immemorial? No, but just watching him play at the Troubadour, though they got every single detail wrong. It was astounding <laughs> how wrong it was. It was making me crazy. It was still exciting. Well, we were gonna start with the dirt, but let's yeah. talk about Rocket Man. We can go back to the dirt. So Rocket Man, what did you see exactly? I saw some childhood stuff. I saw a few scenes in the mid-70s, but the main thing I saw was his American debut at the Troubadour in 70. Right. And in 1970, the actual Elton John had a very stripped-down band, and they were doing a yeah, lot of jamming. Right. At the Troubadour in real life, it was a trio. It was just Elton on piano and Dee Murray on bass and Nigel Olsen on drums. And then the stage was dark, and there were long jams, and it was really intense. He was pounding on the piano. In this movie, he walks on stage with a big band and plays Crocodile Rock, which he wouldn't write for two more years. And then what happens, which is a big part of this movie, is he floats above the piano. Then the entire audience floats, too. Sure. It's a fantasy musical. That didn't really happen. 
No, 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 no. He did not sure float. Not. Yeah. I could deal with the floating. I can't deal with Crocodile Rock. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's pretty weird. Part of the thing that you or I, if we were writing it, would have trouble bringing ourselves to do is the writers of these things often are, are, I guess, smart enough to know that the facts don't really matter, which is why there were all those maddening things that we've talked about in Bohemian Rhapsody where it's like the wrong decade, the wrong album, everything's yeah. wrong. A pretend breakup of the band that, that, that while was... they were actually in South Africa, like just pure insanity, but it doesn't matter one bit. Yeah. I spoke with Dexter Fletcher, who was the director of Rocket Man and who finished the Queen movie when Brian Singer left. And he said, look, I didn't care that he didn't rock Crocodile Rock then. I wanted the emotion of that moment. And that's all I cared about. This reminds me of Jimmy Iovine saying with when Beats headphones first came out and people were complaining like, it was all out of balance. The bass was too strong. And he'd be like, I don't care, man. It's all about the emotion. And everyone scoffed. And then, <laughs> then he literally made a billion dollars. So probably when someone says that, you should probably listen to as, as grating as it is to those with purest tendencies. Right. I, I guess the argument is it's a fantasy movie. The movie starts, it's with Elton John. He's in rehab in the early 90s. And he's all fucked up and he's fat and he's bloated and he's near death and he's thinking back on, on his life. So, so it's through so the... F- Elton John has to think about his whole life first before <laughs> yes. he goes to rehab, yes, basically? He does. Yes, he does. Straight from walk hard? Yeah. Yes, he does. <laughs> but it's his sort of drug-addled memories just years later. So well, it's that's a like, brilliant premise, yeah. So it's like a musical. Right. Because it, that gives them a freedom right. for fantasy. And Maybe in his drug-addled memory, he was yeah. playing Crocodile Rock at the Tour. Right. Bar. And a main character is his manager slash lover who is named John Reed, who's in the Queen movie, who he was Queen's manager, played by a different actor. Was he the wait? Was he the real the one who was presented as really scummy, or the good one in the Queen movie? Yes, I forget. I think he was the good one. Okay, okay. Yes. Uh, for a second, I thought you meant that guy who was Freddie's solo manager. Who no, was like, no, 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 no. That no, would be no, amazing if that no. guy was that same character was in no, every movie. I mean, <laughs> that character is also in Star Wars. He just <laughs> yeah, keeps showing up. A, yeah. yeah. So it's the same character with a different actor, and it's it's sort of the central story. Of Rocket Man, he was his manager and his boyfriend, and was very tumultuous. Was it option from anything like did the manager write a memoir or something like that? What is the source material? Do you know? It's by Elton. He oh, well, Elton, produced Elton it. has an autobiography coming out in September. Yes, this uh, all time, which I know is because he's he's neck and neck in the charts with me with my new book, <laughs> Plug Bruce Springsteen: The Stories Behind the Songs, which <laughs> yes, came out yes, this yes. week and selling very well. But if if not for Elton John's pre-sales of his autobiography, it'll be yes. one slot higher. But that's okay, Elton. You yes. know, you've done a lot. It's fine. But so yeah, I think I would imagine that a lot of it ties in with the writing of his. And by the way. What brilliant timing on his part. Holy crap. And the farewell tour. This is all synergy that they've been planning out for years and years and years. Elton John, I think, is going to be rich. Yeah, he's making <laughs> so much money now on this farewell tour. That guy's set for life. But you yeah. know, it, it is funny. He does. He, he has his own management company, which is such a brilliant move that Ed Sheeran is involved with. So yeah. basically, this is something only someone with a, a real deep and sort of chess master understanding of the business would market it so... The movie comes out in uh, April, mm-hmm. and the book comes out in September, and there's a, fare- a farewell tour. Which is going to last three years. <laughs> so even Kiss is looking at this and, and being like, man, like Elton, this is uh, and you know, speaking pretty savvy. Of, and speaking of Kiss, I guarantee you that Gene Simmons is meeting as we speak with producers about the Kiss movie. Wouldn't it be great if there were four competing <laughs> Kiss, Kiss movies, movies? all solo about their own stories? Well, just it, it was just like sort of Rashomon-esque. Yeah. And, and just like literally, that. I mean, I'm actually going to be quiet because that's a pretty good pitch. That, that would be amazing <laughs> just to see it through the eyes it's, of it's Peter Chris. It's not for copyright me. Paul and Gene, give me a call. But it's the movie, like every scene happens four times. Yeah. 
it would be uh, something like that could be really cool. And we, we won't even talk about all the other uh, rock biopics that we think uh, would be fantastic because they all just write themselves. I have so and, many ideas. And the trick is the trick is to think of the cheesiest version. Yes. Because Can but, yeah. we do the Pete Townsend one. All right, please. fine. Yes. All right, fine. The the idea for the Who is is, is a rock opera. That's Tret. No one likes opera. Write another My Generation. Yeah. yeah. You, Pete Townsend, are going nowhere. You will never write a good song ever. You are ugly. You have a big nose. Right. No, no one with a nose like that yeah. will ever be a rock and roll star. And then you cut right to him like, ba yeah. Anyway, let's talk about The Dirt. I enjoyed the first half of The Dirt. Actually, what I enjoyed the most was the everything up until the Ozzy scene. Mm-hmm. I really enjoyed. Yeah. When it started getting... As soon as the tone had to turn kind of dark, I felt like it was a problem because I felt like th- what they wanted to make was a romp, but the actual facts impeded them, and it started to make me a little nauseous, and awful things happen, and it, and it started to it just started to bum me up. Yeah, I mean it's a very tricky thing because they want joy and rock and euphoria, but his daughter died, and Vince killed somebody. And, you know, and real shit happened, and it's hard to go back and forth between those two things and sort of tell the story. It would, They were trying to serve so many masters. It, it's really tough, and it, it's almost like they would have been better off expanding kind of like the way that Bohemian Rhapsody did and just picking the feel-good part of the story, though the problem is they would have gotten slaughtered for that. So I just don't know. It's just, it just was tough. I, I just didn't. It just was hard to reconcile the tonal shift. It, it just it just truly was a bummer. And I'm not sure to what end exactly, except to tell the story. I thought it was actually a little bit better made than parts of Bohemian Rhapsody, and weirdly had a similar look, like this very bright look to it. Right. Right. But the budget felt lower. It. I think it felt a bit chintzier, but. I preferred it because I couldn't stand the Queen movie. And this was fun. This was fun in parts. And the acting was it was okay at times. Well, many, many, many props uh, to Machine Gun Kelly, yeah. who played Tommy Lee. And now I spent uh, like two to three days on the road with Machine Gun Kelly for a story. That's Colson Baker is what he's credited as. And he's, a, he's also a rapper and singer. And I spent time with him like a couple years ago on the road. And he's really living the Motley Crue lifestyle. He was just like smoking more weed than like any other human being I've ever seen drinking from a bottle like he it's not like he had to do like a, a a ton of acting for this movie but he was almost unrecognizable with the dark hair he played someone convincingly played a teenager even though he's in his late 20s mm-hmm. he made me believe he was tommy lee that dude's a really good actor yeah 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 i fully agree and you're I not a fan of his music part. Yeah. i don't love yeah. the music but he's a very talented guy he's very charismatic and our friend and colleague uh, cameron crow uh, really did all of this for him. Cameron, yeah. I, you know, I'll just tell the story briefly because it's something that Colson told me in, in my feature. I mean, sorry, what's the name of the show? The ro- the Showtime show. It the, was called Roadies. Roadies, yeah. I was saying you know, the Roadies show. So Cameron, Cameron Crowe's Roadies show, there was a role that was really perfect for Colson Baker, a.k.a. Machine Gun Kelly. And Colson was going through some hard times. He had a lawsuit that made him lose a lot of money. His rapping career seemed like it was uh, in the toilet and he really, really needed this. And he auditioned. And Colson did this thing that you're not supposed to do, which is he called the casting director after the audition and was like, man, man, I really need this part. This part is me. I will kill it. And Cameron Crowe means everything to me. And also all the stuff that if they have a book for actors Mm -hmm. of like what never to do, like do not do this. Not only will you not get the part, you'll be like blackballed forever in your life. Of course, also in the book of don't do this was say that 
Eminem's teenage daughter is hot on Twitter, <laughs> and Machine Gun Kelly also did that. Yes, that was did. also not so smart and, and may have uh, not been a great career move. Anyway, but Cameron, who is the greatest guy, really responded to this move. Cameron cast him in Roadies, and all of a sudden, Colson Baker, Machine Gun Kelly, has an entire new career, and here he is in the dirt. And I, I mean, the the other connection, the other person I know who's it, who's played in the movie is uh, Tom Zutow, who is played by Saturday Night Live's by Pete Davidson. By Saturday Night Live's Pete Davidson. Looking at how he played him, you do not imagine that person dating Ariana Grande. I have to say, which it shows he can act. Yeah. Or something, or or just life is strange. I don't know what it shows, but Tom Zuta w- went on. I, I wouldn't mind seeing a biopic of him because he went on to be the A&R guy who also discovered Guns and Roses and worked closely with them for many years and even returned to work during Chinese Democracy. Yeah. So it was fast, and I talked to that dude for like many many hours when I did my making of Appetite for Destruction story a long time ago. And it was crazy to so this guy that like uh, I know played in a, in a biopic and really prominently he had a huge part. Yeah, I mean it, it was way off the actual history, but it was totally. Well, let's let's talk about that. You again, th- this is your new niche. One of your new niches is fact checking the hell out of these biopics. Yeah. What was wrong with the dirt on a factual basis? Well, I will just say broadly speaking, <laughs> it was much more accurate than the horrid Queen movie. I will give it full props for that. By the time that Zoo taught that he first encountered them. They began their own label and were releasing music on their own. And hmm. then there was a big bidding war that, like Virgin Records, they were giving them a very hard sell. And there was a long battle in Zutat. He fought for months and months, was offering more and more money. So this endless story. In the movie, he just walks into a bar and is a hey, guys, I saw your show. It was fantastic. You're signed. <laughs> and they go, great. And then at the end of the movie, he comes back and he's like, well, Nikki, I guess the band is over, you, you, you know, but here's your publishing band. It was very nice working with you. When in reality, he was long gone by that point. And to get your own publishing is an endless battle. They fought their label for years and years in the press, and they called the head of their label all these nasty names, and it was this whole fight. And it was this whole other story that they didn't even touch upon. It was nice to see that bit where they admitted that they eliminated the other manager it was like Doug Thayer yeah. and, and they even were like I, I actually think that that's an approach that there's some legs to in these movies I really dug that when they were like like they have uh, they have Doc McGee the manager you know punch a guy out and be yeah. like you guys need a manager yeah. and then they're like well that didn't really happen <laughs> right and here's our other manager who's a great guy we're sorry he's been written out of this movie and they show him disappear and, and yeah. then I was like okay that self-awareness right. and that sort of acknowledging that we're telling a story here I enjoyed yeah, I fully agree. It was in the 90s when it got really mushy. When the reunion that was with Vince Neil in the movie, they meet him at a bar and they hug and they cry and they bring him back and then they go on tour. <laughs> in reality, they hated Vince Neil. They did not <laughs> want him back. He didn't want to go back. They were forced into a room by their managers and their lawyers and they screamed at each other it was this whole thing and very reluctantly they were forced to bring him back but they briefly thought about having a five-man motley crew which on that would have john karabi playing guitar i was fascinated by the use of ozzy in the movie because yeah. i was like okay and again I, I kind of overdo this but i always think there's some teenager who's literally never heard of ozzy osbourne before and that's right. their first view of him 
And so do they think he's like a legend who's cool or do they think he's a doddering lunatic? And well, it's actually an incredibly negative introduction of, of Ozzy Osbourne. But he was both things at the same time back then. Yeah, I don't then. care what he was, but I'm, I'm talking yeah, yeah. I'm saying about perception. Yeah, yeah, I guess yeah, it's hard to imagine just watching that as, an, as somebody that didn't know Ozzy, but he would come off, he was a complete psychopath then. I would imagine that he approved it. I don't know. Well, that's, but... But that story has been told a thousand oh, times. Oh, I know, but 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 to, it's one thing to to for it to be told. It's another thing for that to be your only appearance in a very prominent movie. Right. I guess he approved it. I don't know how uh, the, legally that he may not have legally. to. I think he I think he may not have to. You know. I think, yeah. I think. But it, it's. I I guess I wonder whether he's happy about it. I, next time we talk to him, that's actually a great yeah. question because, you know, and also I, I really don't think that ants thing ever happened. He claims that that it didn't happen, which is Ozzy, but he was blackout drunk for the whole time back then. I don't know. I think he would be dead if that happened. I don't think that's good for you. Something terrible would happen. If, would it, if, if you snort live ants? Yeah, that, that can't be good. That, yeah. that seems medically impossible. Well, and the film in, in the movie, they don't mention Pamela Anderson, who was the most famous part of their 90s. Yeah, and the, I mean, I've heard people talk about this even on, on this channel that maybe that, that was a can of worms. That well, they would not want to it's open. very complicated because because right now they don't speak and they hate each other. And he went to prison. He was locked up for about six months for for like beating her up. You know, I actually blocked that out. That's horrible. Yeah, he was locked in prison for six, six months. months for assaulting her. That's that's horrible. Yes, but so, that's why it's hard to make a cute movie about these guys. Well, and now especially that they've been working on this movie for about ten years, so it way predates the Homie Two era. But and, the timing of it. And then there's an incredibly awkward fact that beyond awkward, you know, really damning fact that in the book there's an admission of rape that yeah. they then re- retracted Corey Grow, our colleague asked them about it and they said that they don't that maybe maybe they don't remember it. Maybe that it wasn't true when they said it, that kind of thing. It's a story they told they told Neil Strauss about it was a, seventeen years ago. It was ago. a revenge of the nerds type switching scenario that at the time I guess people thought was some kind of combo but, and now we understand is is a horrifying but, violation of consent. And there are two points in the book where they reference it and in both Times he says that they kind of rape somebody, you know, and and now he's saying what? You, you mean that part of my authorized book that's been in print for almost twenty years? Well, I don't know what that is. So again, this is where you know, actually, an, an interesting tension, in fact, in all of these movies, perhaps going forward, because mm-hmm. okay, you're going to be telling these stories. But there's going to be aspects that are hashtag problematic and sometimes incredibly ugly with hindsight. You know, that's a problem in some cases, one that's difficult to solve without either being unfaithful to the truth, making a bad movie, or horrifying audiences. Yeah. I mean, is this going to make fans of Motley Crue's music per se? I, I think it does. Yeah. It shows the excitement of it. I, I'm, I've i never been a huge fan, but it, it shows the excitement and simplicity and yeah. power of what they did. Yeah, I think that an unfair thing about Motley Crue is they got lumped in and, they, and on the same level as like Warrant and Great White and Cinderella. Honestly, though, can I just say something? Yes. What people say about like Every time they like one 80s band of yeah. this ilk, they'll always be like, you know, the thing with Cinderella, man, is they always get lumped in with, no, with people like Motley, Warrant. And, no, but Motley Crue are different. <laughs> you know what I mean? They're, like Cinderella, they were more like the Stones. You no, know, like, like that. I, it happens to every, everyone. It, it, there's a reason why they shouldn't be lumped in. Who's the one that can definitely be lumped in? I think that Poison are the embodiment of shit from that period. Their okay. music is horrible. <laughs> okay. But, all right, sorry. Go on, make your case. But yeah. with Motley Crue... They predate all that stuff. They start in the very early 80s, and the first record is fantastic. It's punk meets glam and meets power pop, and it's truly great music. I think it's clear Nikki Six is a very good songwriter. 
It's just the production and everything else by the mid 80s just destroyed everything. But even by Dr. Feelgood, I think Kickstart My Heart's a fantastic song. And I think their music is much better than most of their peers. That's interesting. I mean, for me, I guess the narrative I like is that Guns N' Roses were so much better than all of these bands. But they're a whole different entity. Yes. But I guess basically it's like they were perceived, they're the one. They're the ones for me where I'll be like, well, the problem with Guns N' Roses, they get lumped in. With, but no one know, lumps in poison yeah. with Guns N' Roses. They're, it's a whole, it's... Like the stones at this point. Maybe we can play that song if we if we can. When Metallica first heard this, they said, "Bring us that producer." That sounds fucking incredible, which was Bob Rock, which gave birth to the Black Album. I really enjoyed the portrayal of Mick Mars, which I think was pretty accurate to when I know his personality, because without that sort of slightly grizzled cynicism, I think the movie would have been really sugary and headachey in the early scenes. Right. And he's just like that. I have talked to him a few times. He's this grizzled old guy who's hysterical. He's totally dry and just really funny. But he was all of like 30 maybe when the band got together, right? 32 max. But Tommy was 17. Right. <laughs> so. But they were, they were like, they're like, we've got it all, an old man. And I was like, well, come on. But he was prematurely old too right. because of his disease. I mean, he right. looked much older than them and it was always funny. Was there really an overweight hippie? In the band at some point? That, or was did, that just... I, did, there was a first guitarist that they didn't like. I'm not sure if he was fat, but that part's real. And, and there's a singer before Vince also, which, which they didn't show. Huh. That actually could have been good. I wonder how they made that decision. Maybe it's just it's just to clear up the narrative. Always clear up the narrative, clean up the narrative. Yeah, and, and just go forward. Just boom, boom, boom. You, you can't dwell on these weird details. What parts did you think nailed it the most, and where did you just kind of lo- totally lose face in, in the movie? I think the parts that got it the most was the sunset strip scene in the very early eighties when they're when they're playing those clubs. And yeah. that felt real and the and the backdrops and the audience that looked very real. As they get bigger and they play arenas and stuff, it looked fake because their budget is budget, so low yeah. that you don't see the audience. It's just some empty stage and it looks so chintzy. I think it's weird, you know, the sex scenes. I must be getting old because I was getting bored of the repetitive sex scenes. A and B I also thought they really, maybe inadvertently, just made it look really gross and unappealing to, yeah. to have to, to be I, that kind of rock star. I thought so, too, that they kept saying that they didn't want a movie that was like a VH1 movie f- that was in the late 90s with Def Leppard or Meatloaf. But to me, it felt the exact same, but with sex scenes. Right. And the trend of s- sort of classic rock in the movies is so strong right now that it's really not even just limited to biopics. You're seeing a sort of new kind of rock movie coming out, and there's two of them just this year. One is Yesterday, which is a pretty strange concept for a movie. It's sort of in an alternate universe in which the Beatles do not exist, and a guy basically starts coming up with the Beatles songs and becomes famous off of them. And so that, I mean, I'd love to see the the whole, it's, it's, it has a really kind of strong pedigree to it. It's directed by Danny Boyle and written by Richard Curtis. So I imagine it's going to become something of a thing. So there's that. And then there's a movie called Blinded by the Light, which is based on a, a, real, a real memoir by a real person about being a Pakistani-British kid in 
1987. It's uh, Sarfraz Manzor, who uh, wrote a great book on this subject. It's about being that person in the most unlikely place and discovering the music of Bruce Springsteen and becoming a fanatic. And it just ruled Sundance. People went insane for it. And I wouldn't be surprised if that's an absolute smash when it comes out in August. Yeah, I'm guessing both these movies are going to be hits. I'm not quite sure about the Beatles one. It's so such a weird it's concept. It's a wonky concept. There's something yeah. it's there's something like a little bit and the other thing I've learned is that in that movie in Yesterday there's a thing where there's other differences in the reality. There's no cigarettes or Coca-Cola yeah, or something. It, and I was like, "No, no, no. Wouldn't the whole point be to just remove the Beatles?" Yeah, it looks, I don't get it, man. It's very weird and I think of Across the Universe which got so much buzz then didn't do very well, right? Which is Yeah. Well, though it became a beloved movie among right among like young like, people young, later. young, young like see. sort of young women. It had a cult following, but it it actually it relates to another thing we're talking about, which is that there were a spate of Broadway musicals because of classic rock Broadway musicals, and in part because the revenue streams of recorded music got slashed away. And so these established artists were looking for new revenue streams. And for a while, it was Broadway. You two didn't have, for example, didn't have success with that. And I think the gold rush there has, has dimmed a little bit. And now it's it's biopics and movies, right? Right. I just think that Broadway is so expensive and so hard to pull off and takes forever. And now with Netflix and with all of these other outlets, it's much easier to just do a movie. And if you think of a big band as a corporation, which they are in a lot of ways, they need new customers to replace all the ones who are dying off, basically. So it's both a revenue source and, as we discussed at the beginning, truly... A marketing thing as well, and yeah. for, for, I mean, look what it did. And actually, we didn't—you're absolutely—we didn't even get to the fact that Queen are now able to play to an entirely yeah that bigger going, audience that they are going on tour now, and I'm, I'm sure it's selling insane amounts of tickets, and they've made young Queen fans who they can pump for money f- for the next fifty years now. I have to say, and this is very strange. I have always liked Queen. I have not seen them with Adam Lambert. And here's a great example of this. Yeah. I kind of want to see it now. I've seen it twice. It's fantastic. But it's just, you know, you you can never say where that thing comes from in you of like, I want to see that. I mean, you can. It means you've been marketed to. The right emotions have been awakened. But just examining my feelings. Before, I was like, whatever. It's not the real queen. Like, I'm sure it was great. But I, I just never. And now even I'm like, I'm like, gee, I kind of I want to hear some queen songs. I enjoyed that movie. I would like to see them perform those songs live. It just, it worked, man. I would even see Motley Crue more after yeah, seeing that movie. But, yeah. but, but they broke up. I would. I said, I yes. Think of, <laughs> I, I think the best biopic of the past like 20 years actually was Brian Wilson which did increase his ticket sales in a very big way and was very well done because they just picked two timelines and they made a small movie. So how long does this gold rush last and what phases will we see it go through? I'm surprised there have not been by the way more hip hop biopics after after Straight Outta Compton. No, there was one big thing happened. It was a Tupac movie bombed. Yeah, but it wasn't good though. It was execution dependent. The Biggie movie bombed and the Tupac one bombed. It was Biggie was before Compton, but it's like two out of the three were disasters. I I think that there's definitely room there. Um, you know, it's, it's too bad Eminem already made his. <laughs> yeah, I can just do it again. <laughs> it's like when I was interviewing Eminem a few years ago, he started talking about like you know he's reminiscing, and and he's like you know man it's you know it's crazy I was just blah 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 wrong side of the tracks so I was like yeah they should make a movie out of it. <laughs> yeah. to, to, his, to his credit he laughed. I mean yeah. it's, it's just weird that these things you know get get immortal. I mean I'll tell you I'll tell you what would be 
one of the most phenomenal biopics of all time, but it would have to be right. made so right, and right. it would be such pressure on the person they cast. Right. Madonna. That would be incredible. But it will face the problem they all face. If it's not authorized, they can tell the story right, no, but it, they it would don't... Have to, it would have to be authorized, yeah. and it would have to get the most amazing young actress. Yeah, but she'll be in charge of it, so it'll be her version of the history, which is always <laughs> she discovers She discovers the Kabbalah at age 17 in yes, this one. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, she's, yeah, exactly. Right. It'll be mainly <laughs> it's, a... It's, it's Yentl. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so they all have this fatal flaw that either they're authorized and they have the music, but it's hopelessly compromised and warped in the way the artist wants, or it's unauthorized and they have no music, and it's like that Henry movie with Andre 3000 where there's no Hendrix songs. What is he? He plays like Hey Joe and stuff. Yeah, and Watchtower. So Dylan gave the publishing no problem I, for Watchtower? Yeah, of course, yeah, of course. Uh, but and well, if it's someone with a lot of cover songs, like I was trying, I was thinking about Van Halen, it's like uh, uh, Ice Cream Man, Dancing the Street, it's like, yeah, like, and, like, and like Pretty Woman, yeah, they could do a million. It's, it just, I wonder how long it takes viewers to be like, wait a second. Yeah, this is all covers. <laughs> and start adding other covers they never did and then right. just writing like slightly off. I mean, the, the classic, what, what was it? On Thirty Rock, Janet Jupler, it was, Janet Joplin, yeah, yeah, because they couldn't get the rights, the, the life right. rights to Janis Joplin. But the, do you need the life rights to a famous person, or you just need the music? rights? No, I think it's more like the music rights. Right, that, but but it was funnier to have Janet Joplin. Yeah, it's, it's still it's still a good shorthand for like the busted unauthorized version. I think there is room though. There's that best selling novel now that's that's a uh, a fake oral history of a band. I mm-hmm. think there is room for Stillwater style fictionalized things that are done but they have to be done super but super right. I, and I, I love s- movies like that. That thing you do. I think there's that room was for that. fun, but it's so much bigger if there's a built-in audience. That's true. That's true. Uh, you know, Fleet, Fleetwood Mac obviously would be That's the big one. Yeah. I think a Fleetwood Mac movie done right would be, would be bigger than the Queen movie. Yeah. So, I mean, there's no doubt there's future to this. It's actually going to be really interesting to watch. It's going to be interesting the extent to which it revives both the the actual music of classic rockers and rock and roll in general, because I imagine it will, it will pull right up onto the 90s. You know, you might see a Chris Cornell biopic rather than just a Chris Cornell documentary. Hmm. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised. Scott Weiland would be pretty great. I mean, oh, all that'd these be things. That would so sad. Probably, you know, the, so there's a lot of possibilities there. So, But uh, we'll see. And uh, I should say again, uh, I'm Brian Hyatt. My new book, Bruce Springsteen, The Stories Behind the Songs, is out now. It's selling great. I'm so pleased. And it tells the story of every Bruce Springsteen song. I hope you pick it up. David Brown and I have an event on April 2nd at The Strand. Please come by. And this has been today's Rolling Stone Music Now. We'll be back next week here on SiriusXM Volume Channel 106. In the meantime, we are a podcast. Download us as a podcast. Subscribe to us as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was the three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.